All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I am excited to be here. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm the minister. I'm the preacher here at Alliance Christian Church. And today we are going to finish up our 10th sermon in our four-week series on Philippians. A little inside joke. We've uh, we're, we're going through the book of Philippians, and we're going to finish up the book today. Um, it's taken us a little bit longer than expected because we've been really diving into the text, but today's the day. We're finally going to finish it up. Um, so if you have your Bibles, here in a minute, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. But before we do that, I would love if you would go with me to God in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your Son. We thank you so much for your Word. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the weather we have outside, and we, we thank you just for being you, for being the creator of all things. Father, as we study your word this morning, I ask that you would soften the hearts of those who are in this room, that you would help them to receive your word, that you would help them to not only hear it, but also apply it to their lives. Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would make my words clear and concise. I ask that you would help me to handle your word in a way that's faithful and true, um, and I ask that it would be your message that, that flows out today, not my opinions, not my thoughts, but your word, um, because it's the foundation that we stand upon. And we pray all of these things in the name of your Son. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. So let's look at, I want to just jump right into the text. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this, this last little passage here in Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, jump into chapter 4. Let's... Let's start in verse 10. Paul's kind of wrapping up the letter here. He says, I have great joy in the Lord because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before but had no opportunity to do anything. This is one of those moments like we've been talking about throughout this letter where this is kind of an inside baseball conversation we're getting. We're getting one half of the phone call conversation. And so apparently there was... The church in Philippi desired to give a gift or money or support to Paul in some way, but they were unable to do so. That's really all the details we get. But he's calling back, if we're paying attention, this is actually calling back to chapter 2 when he talks about Epaphroditus. So I'm going to jump back in my Bible to to chapter 2, verse 29, where Paul's talking about Epaphroditus, and he says, "...so welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him." Since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died, he risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. So we get this picture in the church that the the church wanted to be generous. They wanted to give to Paul, but for whatever reason they weren't able to. I I tend to think that this might have been the root cause under that disagreement between Yodi and Syntyche that we get earlier in chapter 4. When you think about the life of a church, how you spend your money is kind of a big deal. We, we live in a world of limited resources today, and it was, it was even more so back then. And so as a church, you've got to think, do we, do we collect our resources? Do we help the poor in our own city? Do we help the missionaries? Do we help Paul, who's in prison and, and has always been so faithful to us? Um, and so regardless of, of what the, the disagreement was about, they wanted to help Paul out before, and now as this letter is being sent to Paul and Paul's sending his reply, they've finally managed to scrape up enough to send some help. 
probably for his, his legal defense. Remember, he was in prison. He needed the money and the resources in order to defend himself from prison, from, from being exiled, from being possibly executed. It could have even been something as simple as sending food in a first century prison. You don't get three meals a day. You don't get three hots and a cot. That's not how it worked back then. So it could have been just something as simple as food or even ink and parchment. Think about today. We have paper and pen is, is just abundant. You want to write somebody a letter. I mean, you can scrounge up some paper and pen no matter where you are. But in Paul's day, the ability to be able to write a letter to the churches, to have that papyrus, to have that parchment and, and, and ink, that was a big deal. So whatever it was, they, they sent him this gift, whether it was money or, or things, and Paul, Paul lets them know how grateful he is. But then in verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in any circumstance. This is, this is a real interesting couple of verses here. Because basically what Paul's going to do here in the rest of this section of the letter is he's going to say, thank you for the gift, I'm really grateful, also I don't need it. But also, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm so grateful, but also, I'm okay, I don't need it. He's kind of walking this tightrope here. And what you have to understand is we read on, we're going to find out that the church in Philippi was extremely generous. A little bit later, Paul's going to say, when, when he left Macedonia, no other church shared with him in, in financial matters. No other church was as generous as the church in Philippi. And Paul knows that the... Are you changing the slides? Oh, yeah. Don't change the slides, Richard. You're good. Leave them where they are. Sorry. Sorry, I had them all. It's my bad. Paul knows... Um, this is the kind, these are the kind of people that if he, if he expresses gratitude, they're instantly going to think, well, we should probably send more because it was so helpful. He needed it and, and he was so grateful. We should send more. And so Paul's in this tight spot because he knows that they're in a rough spot. He knows that they've scraped up every penny they've had and that they wouldn't blink an eye about just giving it all away if he asked. And so this tightrope that Paul has to walk is, is he wants to make sure they know he's grateful and also, he wants to make sure that they don't send any more because they'll, they'll give themselves into the poorhouse if he let them. But then you... It's such a tough social situation, isn't it? Let's think about the human aspect of this. You don't want the church to send more, but at the same time, if you just say, no, 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 I'm good, don't send any more, I'm happy, I'm content, well, then the church back home is going to be like, well, did he not care about what, what we did for him? He's not grateful? That's not good either. So he's, he's walking this tightrope. My guess is that it really was a lifesaver for him. But he says, I'm not in need. I've learned to be content in any circumstance. And in verse 12, he says, I've experienced times of need and in times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret to contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, I have plenty or nothing. I've learned this secret to being content. He's describing the ups and downs of life here. Paul understands that the rain sometimes falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes you have a lot, sometimes you have a little. And if you just limit your contentment to the stuff that you have, well, you're going to have a bit of a roller coaster ride when it comes to your joy in your life. 
And this secret to contentment that he's describing is, is really hitting at the heart of the fact that sometimes bad things happen to good people. Paul was a good person. He was locked up in prison. You don't think he went, went out on his missionary journeys and was like, oh, I sure hope I get locked up in prison today. No. He wasn't trying to get locked up in prison, but, but he's still content no matter what situation he's in. And in verse 13, it just he hits the nail on the head with this secret to contentment. He says, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. He leans on Christ. That's where his contentment comes from. Even in a dark, dingy prison cell, he leans on Christ. And notice how it doesn't say, Jesus Christ makes everything in my life sunshine and rainbows. It just gets all better now that I have Christ as my Savior. No, it's not how it works. He didn't say, now that I have faith in Christ, I'm going to get out of this prison and I'm going to have all the food I need and all this. No, he says, I'm able to do these things. I'm able to weather the storms of the ups and downs, having a lot and having a little, because Christ strengthens on me. The idea here is that Jesus is giving him the ability to endure the trials that life throws his way. And in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. Again, this is that tightrope. Thank you for the gift, but I don't need it. I'm content. I've got Christ. But also, you did well to share with me. Thank you again. He's displaying both this, I'm okay, I don't need any help. I've been through worse. Also, don't send any more. That's important here. He has this genuine concern for the church in Philippi. And in verse 15, he says, As you Philippians know, at the beginning of my gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, on more than one occasion, you sent something for my need. What a... Could you imagine getting that letter from an apostle? You did well to send with me. You were the only one who was helping me in this matter of giving and receiving It seemed like the church in Philippi was always the one that came through when times were tough. It seems like no matter what was going on, Paul could always count on the church in Philippi to be the ones to give generously and self-sacrificially. But then he says in verse 17, I do not say this because I'm seeking a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. Are you guys getting the picture of this back and forth between thank you and also don't send more? I think he's made it perfectly clear here in about four or five verses where he just bounces back and forth. It's like three times now. Thank you, but I don't need it. I don't need a gift. I seek the credit that abounds to your account. Um, I want to take a minute. I want to show you something really cool about this verse. Let me see if I can get this to pull up here. And if it looks good on the screen, it's probably hard to see there. This is a picture of uh, a very, very, very early manuscript of the Bible. This is from like the year maybe 150. This is an original, it's about as close to original as you can get here. And I've, for one, I think it's really cool that you can see these kinds of things and you can see um, these little manuscripts. And I put in red here, you don't have to know Greek or read it because I underlined it and I translated it here. Um, but under, in red, I underlined this verse that we just read 
And it literally says, I am seeking the abounding fruit for your word. That's, that's an odd little turn of a phrase here. But they find these, these they go, the archaeologists, they go into these sites and they find these manuscripts of the Bible that um, in a lot of cases were just dumped in trash heaps uh, because the Bible was so prevalent by the time of the second century that there were scraps of Bible just laying in the, the landfill. Um, one, of the, the, one of the biggest archaeological finds they found for the Bible, which, which really just sums up the authenticity of, of the New Testament scriptures, they found over half a million individual little sheets of papyrus and parchment. 500,000 little manuscripts, ranging in size from big full sheets like this one, all the way down to about the size of a, of a nickel, with maybe one or two little letters on it. Some of them are from the Bible, but remember, it's a, it's a trash heap, so some of them are just random scraps of pieces of paper that somebody scribbled on, and then it ended up in a landfill somewhere. And so they, and by the way, they've only gone through about 5,000 of the half a million of them, which blows my mind. They found this like over 100 years ago, and it just takes that long for these, these archaeologists, these scientists. And so I always, I know that's not how it really works, but I always imagine the guy with the Indiana Jones hat, and he's going through, and he's got all these manuscripts, and he goes into the museum, and, and he finds a new one that they haven't done yet and he and he dusts it off and he gets it in the laboratory and puts it under the the magnifying glass and translates it and they're cataloging all of this stuff and think you know this could be the most important discovery this could be the earliest bible manuscript we could ever find but 99 times out of 100 they do all that and they read and it's like a receipt for a shipment of grain in alexandria or something like they do it and it's like for the purchase of five pounds of wheat from uh, Emmanuel, payment of three denarii paid in full, receipt credited to the account of the amanuensis of the... Okay, is it, most of that stuff they find is just like, oh, that's a letdown. If somebody's, it'd be like if they dug up our civilization and they found a bunch of old Walmart receipts. <laughs> ah, wouldn't that be a bummer? Well, the reason I bring all this up and these receipts and stuff they find, one, because it's really cool, but number two is because when we read this verse here in Paul, this, this abounding fruit to your word, which is such an odd phrase, it's exactly the same type of language that they find on those old receipts for grain and wheat and shipments. What we're getting here is Paul is mimicking a receipt as if he was a distributor and they had sent him some grain and he says, I, I seek the credit that abounds to your word. This is another way of saying your credit has been added to your account. Your account has been paid. I've received your payment and your, your account is in the positive now. You've paid the balance on your account is another way of saying it. And so in verse 18, he says, for I've received everything, and I have plenty. I have all that I need because I received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. This is a, you're paid in full statement. That's what Paul's doing here. He's writing it up like it was a receipt for grain, and he says, you're paid in full. 
You've given so much. You've been so generous that your credit is not only even, you have a positive net amount in the account. If we were doing this, this finances thing, I owe you something because of how generous you've been. And I can't help but wonder what prompted this. Again, like we talked about, we're hearing one half of the phone call conversation where they wanted to give. They were givers from the beginning. They were this generous group of people. And for some reason, they were unable to until finally they were able to give. They were able to be generous. And, and I can almost imagine Epaphroditus with this, with this little bag. And he's like, Paul, we wanted to help you out. We scraped up everything we can. We know it's not much. As soon as I go back, I'll, I'll get the church together and we'll scrape and scrounge and we'll be more generous and we'll bring you back some as soon as we can. And Paul's like, stop. You've done enough. He says, you're good. You don't owe me a thing. I want the credit that abounds to your account, this sacrifice that's pleasing to God. Your generosity is what makes God credit to your account. Your generosity is this sacrifice that God is so pleased with. In God's eyes, your ledger balance is above and beyond. He says, you can relax now. You don't have to keep being so generous. He says, in verse 19, he says, and because of this credit on your account. And, and take in mind, he's using this language sort of poetically. I don't want you to think that you're, you're saved somehow by your giving and generosity. This is all poetic language Paul's using. He's because of this, he says, And my God will supply your every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. May glory be given to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. And that's where he ends it. Verse 21 and 20 through 23, he just finishes up and says, Give greetings to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers with me here send their greetings. All the saints greet you, especially those belonging to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's how he ends it. After all you've done, you're paid in full, you're good. Send a greeting, no more. This is... I'm going to step back a little bit and look at this passage. This is... This is this is a giving passage, right? This is the kind of passage that, I hate to say that this is how it sometimes works, but in the church, you know, you, you look at your budget and your expenses and you're like, oh man, we're starting to run a little bit into the negative. We better break out Philippians chapter 4 and do a giving sermon. That's, that's kind of what kind of a passage this is. We should encourage this generosity. I'm not saying that that's good or bad or right, wrong, or indifferent, but that is something that happens in the church, the, the universal church today, that you look at your numbers and you're like, oh, we gotta, we got to do a giving sermon. And I read this passage and I look at how generous the church in Philippi, and I think of how that, that says this standard giving sermon goes like this, where you say, look how generous the church in Philippi was. You guys should be more generous. And if we're as generous as them, then God's going to supply for our needs. That's the, the three-point sermon. Right? And I look at this passage and I think about this church. And I see a group of people who have already gone above and beyond in their generosity. I really do. I, I feel a lot like Paul, where I'm so grateful for how generous this church is. And I see how generous you people are. And, and I think to myself, like, you guys, is, you're paid in full. This is one of the most generous congregations that I've ever been a part of. And so, I'm not preaching a given sermon. Not here. Not in this church. 
I don't, I don't think you need it. And I, I, I truly mean that. I, well, I, I sit in on the, on the meetings, and, and I, I get to see the budget and the behind-the-scenes the things of how much we spend. And we do that once a year. We look at our budget. And I can do simple math. I can see how much we bring in, and I, I divide by the number of people that are usually here, and I always go, whoa, oh, my goodness, these people are... They really have a heart. They really have a heart for giving. And I, I cannot look at this passage and tell any of you to give any more because I see what you give. And I'm like, yeah, you guys have got it. You're already doing what the church in Philippi was doing. You're already doing what Paul was, was commending them for. And so I just, I want to just give you guys a little bit of this, okay? Um, and if you haven't been around this, this group of people for that long, or maybe you've been gone and come back, I... I want to kind of brag on these people because they won't do it for themselves. Never will. They'll never brag about themselves. They'll never boast about their giving. They're always so just silent about it. And so I'll do it. I'll boast for you. This is a very giving church. This is a very generous church. And, and you guys are doing an amazing job. And, and, I, and I look at this and it's not even, you know, I look at the spending, right? And, and Reva, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but... Just full disclosure, when we spend as a church, our top three expenses, number one is me and my salary. And so again, I feel like Paul where I'm like, this is a, can't ask you guys to give anymore. You're already supporting my family and doing so, so amazing. And, and I, I want to be like Paul and I want to say I'm good, I'm content, I'm happy. So please just thank you. That's the number one biggest expense, just for sake of transparency. I am the biggest expense in this church. I want everybody to understand that and know that. If that makes you mad, you can come holler at me after the sermon. Number two, we fund missions and missionaries. We helped Richard get to Slovakia. Um, we have a bunch of different missions we support. And then the third thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is just keeping the heat on in the winter. That's it. That's what we spend our money on. The rest of it is just mundane you know, office supplies and cleaning supplies. Those are the big top three. We, we pay for my salary, we send missionaries overseas, and we keep the heat on in the winter and the lights on and the utilities. So I want to express the same gratitude that Paul's expressing here and express the fact that we're a giving church, we're a lean church, we try to be as frugal as much as we can, and I want to, I just want to just express my gratitude on how, how amazing this church is in their giving and receiving. And that's it, that's the book of Philippians. And so before we, before we wrap up our series, I kind of want to take a 90-degree turn, and I want to kind of pick up a little housekeeping items from throughout this letter that we've been going through. Um, if, you've, if you've been here through this letter, what we've been doing is we've been going through the text with a microscope, is what we would like to say. We're going verse by verse, and we're picking up on the historical context, the little nuances, and the literary context. We're, we've been looking at the original language and the things that, that Paul says in, in the Greek, and we've looked at how the letter fits into the larger biblical context and how it relates to the book of Acts. All of these little details that go into studying the Scripture. And one of the things that we've really tried to avoid as we've gone through this is, is we've really tried to avoid any temptation to take any particular verse and pluck it out of its context and read it over here by itself. I think that's a good way to read the Bible. But I, 
After all of this study and this in-depth study, I want to put a little asterisk next to that. And I want us to be a little careful. Um, we, we read, well, this morning, we talked about in Bible study a, a few weeks ago, and Stu read the whatever's passages, right? Um, Stu's favorite Bible verses, by the way. And, and a few weeks ago, we had this sermon, and I kind of talked about how this is, uh, this is a, a life of the church thing. It's not necessarily a, uh, you know, my individual relationship with Jesus. This is a, in its context, this is how we as a church should be thinking. Today, we read Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. And again, if we read it in context, we find that sometimes that verse gets plucked out. But the reason I want to put a little asterisk next to all of our study and all of our careful study is that no matter how good that is to study the Bible that way, I think that we can have a danger of becoming sort of these hyper-academic, context-driven Bible snobs and then try to push that on other people. Here's what I mean by that. Philippians 4.13. Um, anybody know who Tim Tebow is? Quarterback? Used to be quarterback for the Denver Broncos, right? 2007 Heisman Trophy winner. Um, outspoken Christian athlete. And one of the things he used to do before his games, he would get his little uh, under-eye shade things, and he would write Bible verses on there. And Philippians 4.13 was the one that he would put on there most. And you would not believe when he was doing that, the number of Christians, pastors, Bible college professors, Christian magazine articles, you name it, the number of Christians who came out against people like Tim Tebow and said, well, you know, he's, he's reading that verse out of context. That verse has nothing to do with football. Give me a break. I mean, really, give me a break. Are we going to... This is my little soapbox here. Are we going to really lambast an outspoken Christian who takes a verse and he finds it inspirational for him and he, it helps him play football? And, or are we going to say, you should stop reading that Bible verse that way? Are we going to criticize? So I want us to actually be careful with this academic study of the Bible. I want us to be careful with our context-driven lens because we can have a tendency to move from being careful students of the Bible to being total jerks and wagging our finger at somebody because, you know what, they read Philippians 4.13 and it gives them encouragement. And yeah, maybe they didn't read the whole chapter. Yeah, maybe they didn't learn it in the Greek. Maybe they didn't learn the historical context. But you know what? They're glorifying Christ. Same thing with the whatever's passage. My asterisk next to that, that's a life of the church passage. Read it. Find encouragement in it. Get it uh, crocheted into a pillow. I don't care. Glorify Christ through your reading of Scripture. That's what is important. And don't ever let some ivory tower elitist Bible snob tell you any differently, even me. This is coming from me as somebody who is an academic, who, is, who reads the text in the original language and does all of these things. Um, I think that Bible snobbery is harmful. Okay, that's my soapbox. I wanted to make sure I said it. I think it's important um, how we interact with other people with the Bible. Last thing I want to do, our little housekeeping item, is I want to take a few minutes since we've been so close into the text, and I just want to zoom all the way out, and I want us to try and 
get a takeaway theme for this entire letter to the church in Philippians, in Philippi. If you haven't read the entire letter all the way through, I encourage you this week to just take 10 minutes, read it all the way through, and get the big picture. One of the things that stands out in this letter is joy. Paul talks about joy again and again and again. Rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful. That's absolutely a theme in this letter. But as you start to peel back the layers on the book of Philippians, what you'll find is that joy is a symptom, not a main cause. Our joy comes from our unity in Christ. In chapter 2, he says, Complete my joy... And be of the same mind, having the same love, being united in spirit, having one purpose. This joy through unity. But as we peel back the layers on Paul's theme of unity, we find that our unity is accomplished through humility. Yeah. He, he talks about a Timothy and Epaphroditus and their humility. And he encourages Euodia and Syntyche to act with humility toward one another in this bid for unity. And of course, we have this example of Christ in chapter 2, this extreme humility where he was in the form of God but took on the form of a slave and death on a cross. And so our humility, as we peel back that, our humility comes from imitating Christ, from running after Christ like he talks about in chapter 3. And as we peel back this layer, going deeper and deeper of imitating Christ and his humility and his sacrifice, we get to the heart of the issue. The reason we run after Christ, the reason we imitate Christ is because he is king. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You peel all that back. The foundation of our joy is on Christ's lordship and our citizenship with him in heaven. And so as we kind of reflect on this letter, I want to encourage you to take all of these themes, all of these ideas, and remember where your citizenship lies. Remember whose kingdom you belong to and remember what king you serve. Because that's where our joy comes from. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, from beginning to end, from everlasting to everlasting, the Alpha and Omega, above all, we worship you. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength that we need to be citizens of your kingdom. We ask that you would give us the wisdom we need to follow your son as king. We ask that you would give us the discernment we need to, to be able to tell things that are of the earthly kingdom and things that are from the heavenly kingdom. Father, we ask that you would help us to be faithful citizens. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this church. And we thank you for the kingdom that you've given us, that we get to be a part of it. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.